AIDS care in its first years, it is this really interesting activist landscape where people are basically able to prove and show to every, you know, everyday people who might be ideologically all over the place on the political spectrum that in fact, a right to housing and a right to medical care and actually getting people on Medicaid is a social good and a fiscal good. And they're able to convincingly make that argument in large part because there's suddenly a real financial incentive to think about how sick people actually interact with the administrative state. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am excited to be joined by a great guest. Saloni Bauman is co-leader of the Asian American Feminist Collective and is a scholar and historian who writes, thinks, and teaches about HIV AIDS, care, and intimacy. Saloni, welcome to the Death Panel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I asked you on to talk about the political economy of housing in the early decades of the HIV AIDS epidemic in New York and an article that you wrote in 2021 for Radical History Review called for a few months of peace, housing, and care in the early AIDS crisis. Before we specifically get into that, do you mind first talking through where you're coming from with your work generally, much of which explores struggles for social provisions and the politics of care work during that period? And I just want to say that I really appreciate the way that you approach the work that you've done to just carefully show some of the conflicts, contradictions, and what these like partial victories from that period of pretty extreme austerity tell us about some of the dynamics that are at play in contemporary privatization of public goods and the kind of preference that we see over and over in policy language for private care over social welfare support. So I just really appreciate the way that you bring that into your work. Oh, thank you so much. It feels so wonderful to hear my work distilled so clearly. You know, I kind of began my dissertation research um, as a scholar of housing. I was really interested in rent control in New York City and sort of the right wing uh, attack on rent control as this last bastion of a kind of New Deal liberalism that needed to be ended in order for the free market to prevail. And as I started looking at AIDS and rent control, I kind of feel like I almost stumbled onto this amazing lens to basically understand how political economy, the political economy of healthcare, but also uh, of reproductive justice and sort of um, liberal governance in general transforms at the end of the 20th century and how questions of gender and sexuality and race are actually really central to that transformation in a way that AIDS, I think, uniquely helps us see or the ongoing AIDS epidemic really uniquely helps us see. So yeah, the work has been a lot about the politics of care, sort of the messy work of caring, because Mm -hmm. something that you all talk about a lot on this podcast are these sort of 
ways that different actors fall out of the story sometimes. So when we're telling a story about disabled people, sometimes we forget that they are actually part of a care ecosystem, which involves workers and loved ones and family members. Similarly, when we're talking about care labor, we sometimes forget about how labor rights are actually in conversation with people's real lives or people who are sort of dependent on the state. So I've really tried to put people with AIDS at the center of my story while trying to kind of explode out some of the categories we traditionally associate with stories about HIV AIDS. So kind of thinking about how actually bringing in women, IV drug users, um, queerness kind of more broadly actually helps us to explain how we go from the fiscal crisis of 1975 to uh, Mm -hmm. kind of the Clinton, you know, Health Security Act failure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is what I loved so much about reading this piece of yours for Radical History Review is that this is a period in New York City where we see sort of policy innovations that I think are are particularly helpful for understanding uh, certain circumstances that we find ourselves in now, whether that's understanding why, you know, nursing companies could, for example, state-run nursing homes could be diverting all these funds towards building massive hospital systems in Indiana, like Mm -hmm. in the case of Tulevsky that we were talking about recently with Karen Tani, all these kind of like public-private partnerships that we're highly critical of on this show. We don't often get a chance to sort of stop and explain some of the context and history behind why we specifically look at some of these moments for policy lessons. So your article in Radical History Review called for a few months of peace looks at a few key legal victories alongside activist struggles for stable housing and end-of-life care during those first two decades of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in New York City. And I think this is a really important thing to foreground, right? The fact that you're specifically trying to juxtapose these two things, which are not necessarily always looked at together. You often see analysis very heavily leaning on looking at courts or sort of very Mm. heavily leaning on looking at the activist struggles. And I think it's really particularly helpful how you look at sort of how the kind of activist struggles are both contingent with and impacted by the kind of circumstances of the court battles that are co-occurring. And I think it really highlights the tension between struggles to have, you know, kinship and care, which are often ignored or devalued by the state, recognized as as legitimate or valid, but then also sort of how that then leads us into this conceit that Dean Spade is very critical of. And I love the way you cite him early on in this piece that, you know, anti-discrimination laws, these are thought of as all that's really necessary policy-wise to sort of make groups equal. And it's often a kind of um, trap that we find our movements dragged into. So just to sort of lay some context out for for our listeners, can you talk about what the sort of state of housing is like for people with HIV AIDS in the mid to late 80s, especially in New York City? Definitely. So in the mid to late 80s, um, the housing landscape in New York is a really fragmented one. And I think one that actually should complicate our understanding of what we even are saying when we say something like public-private, right? Because Mm -hmm. we have a private housing market that is commodified housing without any specific rent caps or regulations. There are some broad housing regulations that apply to everyone, but that housing market in the 1980s is in fact heating up, realtors might say, as a result of these really pro-business, really pro-privatization policies 
that the Emergency Fiscal Crisis Board have adopted in the wake of the 1975 fiscal crisis. So you really do see a landlord's market that's incentivized to evict old tenants Mm -hmm. and um, turn over their housing or kind of frame it as luxury housing. And there are a couple of key laws that I talk about a little bit, like the J-51 tax credit or the SRO conversion law that do structurally change the kind of grounds of housing in New York because these traditional sites of low-income housing, which are not, you know, it's complicated because they're not good housing often. They are often, you know, poorly maintained, um, dirty, dangerous in some cases, types of housing. But housing that is accessible, not means tested, um, often rents week by week, that kind of housing is going away because landlords have a tax incentive to essentially um, rehabilitate it and then turn it over into a luxury market building. Um, And luxury market is sort of broadly defined here. Right. Um, And then you also have this kind of vestige of a World War II protection that is pretty, you know, central to New York's housing market, which is rent control. And rent stabilization has just been introduced in the 70s, but it's still not really the prevailing law of the land. And rent control is enemy number one for that landlord's lobby. It provides tenants with a really robust set of protections, particularly around a legal right to a lease renewal. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a rent controlled lease or in a rent controlled unit at that moment, regardless of your income, you do have a right to a lease renewal. And um, it's very difficult to move you out of that apartment and your apartment can't necessarily increase in cost too much. So those are two two rental systems. And then, of course, you have a private housing market where people own their homes. Um, That's almost a, a third thing that I don't talk about too much in the article because it's sort of a different case altogether. And we can Mm -hmm. kind of talk about, you know, like Medicaid spend down and all of that, like those assets are on the table. So people with AIDS, as they grow ill, um, often are being cared for in their homes if they have homes. But if they grow too ill to work, often they have a very difficult time qualifying for social security disability, in particular, because there are long wait times. And in the early 80s, you know, the average uh, survival time, if you have a full AIDS diagnosis, is about 18 months. So that's not enough time to qualify for Social Security disability, let alone uh, Medicaid payments or housing assistance or any sort of federal program. And then many people with AIDS are also subject to the fact that people don't or, you know, the federal government, the disability offices don't necessarily recognize the markers of their condition as legitimately disabled. Um, So there's there's a big lobbying effort that's also happening, um, kind of led by groups like the Gay Men's Health Crisis and the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. I think they're actually the National Gay Task Force then. Um, (laughs) But yeah, to actually expand Social Security law to basically say that AIDS, if a if a doctor diagnoses you with certain opportunistic infections, that should be presumptive evidence of disabled status and it should fast track your disability application. But, you know, in all of this stories where we see the real human impact of, you know, people are making those decisions, administrators are making those decisions. And there are lots of kind of small stories about people saying that the disability caseworkers at their local welfare offices are refusing to touch applications from people with AIDS, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, people are being rejected without much cause. People with AIDS are excluded from a large number of nursing homes in New York. That's a huge struggle. Um, So there's very little kind of public space 
people have trouble getting access to housing that is not housing they're also already renting. Mm-hmm. So suddenly there's this like big incentive to keep people in apartments that they are already in that the state is kind of like co-opted into because um, people with AIDS are not really welcome in nursing homes. There's no sort of Medicaid reimbursement for anything that's not a skilled nursing facility, which you talk about a little bit. And many people with AIDS don't actually need, you know, full spectrum skilled nursing care. They just need outpatient services or subsidized housing or some sort of relief from the vagaries of the market, which is, you know, kind of escalating. Um, And then, of course, in New York, there's also public housing, which is kind of different. That's a Section 9 lease. Um, And, I'm, you know, those are those like big scale Robert Moses public housing developments. And I don't really talk about that in this article, but it is actually a big piece of the story And I think kind of worth thinking about because many of the early HIV AIDS lawyers that are fighting these cases kind of are selecting test cases for tenants that they believe will be really legible to the courts as interesting. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, good. But, you know, I think that the public housing cases don't actually start being litigated until the late 80s and the early 90s. And it's when poverty lawyers really start thinking about AIDS. And I think that even in terms of kind of a, you know, history of U.S. welfare, the third rail of stigma structures the conversation when it comes to HIV AIDS so profoundly because you have different people who are usually advocates for the poor who suddenly really shy away from a robust defense of the rights Mm -hmm. of their clients when it comes to people with AIDS. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I kept thinking about so much. I mean, some of these arguments that were used against welfare recipients at the same time in the 80s, when we think of the kind of, you know, if you were going to be picking the perfect client to kind of use as a test case right now, right? Um, Because one Mm -hmm. of the real issues is that when people are dying, if the person who died is the person on the lease, then the partner who may also be HIV positive, like in the situation with the case that, you know, is ultimately the one that sort of gets picked that that you focus on, um, you know, the partner was not necessarily entitled to stay in the apartment. So you have a lot of people who are either sick themselves or they're surviving their partner's death who are then sort of in this position where their rental status is put in jeopardy by the fact that their relationship is not recognized legally. And the sort of narrow ways that the kind of Legal apparatus interpreted certain things like what constituted family, for example. And so you have already these pre-existing legal advocacy strategies to try and expand marriage equality to, you know, gay couples in particular, sort of really focused around this normalization of a kind of white middle class gay man and this kind of messaging that we think of now sort of looking back on as being um, potentially a kind of harmful dynamic that really shaped, I think, a lot of like the focus of certain types of advocacy or legal strategies, including the fact that like a lot of SSI advocacy right now by disabled people also focuses on marriage equality, which is like a whole other Mm. morass and conversation. But, you know, these kinds of like arguments that are present at the time against 
those welfare recipients who would have been the the clients who were not the kind of ideal clients, not the ones who were necessarily easy to make the case for um, as being a kind of respectable and deserving recipient of the state's attention and care and sort of deference. You know, the, a lot of those kind of narratives of like degeneracy and decadence and sort of, I don't know, like approach to risk and moral hazard. Yeah. You know, that's being used to describe the HIV population. And it's also being used to describe welfare recipients at this point. And so you have this kind of deliberate strategy towards respectability that emerges as almost like a stopgap response to people being evicted and and not just to people being evicted, but towards like the general framing of HIV and the stigma that is sort of, you know, obviously like influencing everything. So the kind of move of like, okay, well, we're, we're sort of experiencing this stigma, so we're going to like move as far away from that as we can, I think really directly sort of shapes and influences what we ultimately see is like the scope of where the discussion even goes down the line. Totally. And I think, you know, if I could even take a step back. Go for it. Rent control, which is a subject of great fascination to me, is so interesting because it is essentially an argument that citizens or people, however, you know, however narrowly the state constructs that population of interest, are entitled to some protection from the market because that represents a social good. So essentially mm-hmm. it's the, you know, and rent control and later rent stabilization in New York state law anyway, are these hotly contested regulations that are justified for many years by the fact that there is a housing shortage. So they're all kind of underneath these emergency protection orders that are basically renewed every year after World War One over and over and over again, because that housing shortage does not actually go away. Mm. Um, but in theory, if a landlord's market was able to prove that the vacancy rate was very high, the kind of justification for rent control goes away. As we get this sort of very anti-welfare, you know, discourse and or, or even discourse around kind of feminizing poverty, demonizing the poor, painting them as like risky, poor subjects who are in need of management and discipline rather than sort of like liberal coddling. That's kind of a like rhetorical fight, culture war, I think, that really emerges in the 1970s. Rent control becomes increasingly difficult to justify on economic grounds alone. And landlords basically start making the argument that they can't maintain buildings, they can't, you know, protect their tenants. And that's why you have this sort of large scale abandonment. That's where you see things like the Bronx burning, you know, landlords are blaming rent control for why um, they're unable to maintain their buildings, why they can't attract sort of higher income tenants, et cetera, et cetera. So as, you know, AIDS advocates start understanding, and they're really from the ground up, eviction is a huge problem. There are all of these documents that Lambda Legal and Legal Aid and Chelsea are kind of putting out basically saying, how do you navigate the fact that you're, you know, lovers on the lease, but you're not? How do you put your lover on the lease? Gay men try to adopt each other in order to kind of be uh, included in that category of family. There is sort of there, there are certain arenas which qualify you from protection from market forces because it's a social good. What's so interesting that happens in the Brashi case is that they do pick these kind of model tenants or exactly model tenants, model plaintiffs. Um, Miguel Brashi is 
a employed man. He's been in a monogamous relationship, he says, with Leslie Blanchard, his partner who passed away Who's for like many a years. Super famous hairdresser, also. Yes. Yeah. And kind of like reality, early reality TV star. Yeah, like tabloid you know? darling. Yeah, like this is yeah. like a really well-known like household name to like gossipy housewives, too. Exactly. And so and he has money, you know, Les, one of the things that Miguel Brashi is able to point to um, for evidence of the fact that he is, in fact, you know, Blanchard's kin. He's the like rightful inheritor of what is his is that Blanchard leaves him five million dollars and the right to his estate in New Jersey. So it's really not a need based argument. He's making mm-hmm. an argument that he's entitled to stay in his home because it's his home. It's the sort of affective thing that he's gesturing towards, which I actually found very moving that one might actually want to spend the last years of their life in the place that they call home, not because they have nowhere else to go, but because there's some, you know, modicum of choice there. But he's also speaking for a much broader class of people who don't necessarily have anywhere else to go and are going to be kind of turned out because their partner's passed away, or in some cases, the lease belongs to their grandmother and they're living in a multi-generational household and, you know, they have AIDS and, or, um, their sibling was actually on the lease. And so they had the right of first refusal, but they didn't do the documentation right. So there are all these other people who are also extended particular protections if Brashi is able to make his case successfully. And something that I thought was really interesting is that in these amicus briefs that people do file, there's another argument that at least nonprofit advocates and sort of legal advocates start making to appeal to the state, which is that it's actually much more expensive to have an unhoused population because the other crisis that's going on right now or going on at that moment is sort of the rapid escalation of not just homelessness, but street-based homelessness in New York. Mm -hmm. And so there's also a shelter crisis happening and another set of lawsuits that are being filed about um, whether or not New York City is required to provide medically appropriate housing for people with AIDS. So, and this might be kind of reminiscent of like COVID era lawsuits that are filed basically saying the same thing, but as folks are being warehoused in these massive sort of dormitory style shelters People who are immune compromised are far more susceptible to opportunistic infections like TB, which are rampant in the shelters. Mm-hmm. They face violence on the part of both shelter guards and other, you know, um, residents of the shelter. It's a violent and dangerous place for them to be in. And so these kind of two crises are linked by some of those nonprofit advocates who say, you're really, you know, I'm not really sure I would love to go see those judges' papers or kind of think about the deliberations. I'm sure that's a black box I'll never have insight into. (laughs) But it strikes me as interesting that there is kind of this like new financial rationale that is also put forth where keeping people in their apartments is makes sense for the state, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I I think that's one of the things that begins to really just kind of stick in your head when you're reading through this history that you you lay out. And I mean, I I've read your your article a couple times now, and I looked into like some of, you know, the kind of like reporting at the time that was going on about this case. And, you know, some of the ways that people with HIV and AIDS 
are described and some of the ways that like welfare recipients are described, I think the these kind of frameworks and how they factor into the kind of policy that we end up seeing happen, but also in terms of like what people feel is reasonable to talk about is also just so reminiscent of COVID mm-hmm. when you think of discussion of like whether or not these kind of people deserve the state's attention specifically because of a kind of moral hazard framework that is just very much a part of the discussion. For folks who might not be familiar with some of that rhetoric, can you walk through a few examples of sort of what a common way this kind of housing policy to be discussed at the time would be? Because I don't know if folks totally who who are younger especially don't totally understand the kind of full depth of how shitty people were willing to be in public. (laughs) Like when we did our section 504 part two uh, history a couple of months ago, people were like so surprised what folks were willing to say about disabled people to the New York Times. And like we did one recently sort of looking back at the history of how the ADA decided to exclude or how they decided to exclude trans people from the ADA. And you also have these comments mm-hmm. from Jesse Helms that everyone was like, whoa, holy shit, people were comfortable saying that. And, and so I just want to sort of make sure that we have like full context for exactly how this kind of moral hazard framework was communicated. Totally. Well, I think what's okay, stop me if this is just like too freewheeling, but I think you actually <laughs> have put your finger on something that is really interesting, which is that the moral hazard language is a applied in similar but different ways to people receiving public benefits, people in subsidized housing or regulated housing, Mm -hmm. and people with AIDS. And and in some cases, like people occupy all three of those categories. Um, But people with AIDS, I mean, you have people like Jesse Helms basically saying that AIDS is a punishment from God Mm -hmm. for engaging in a sinful lifestyle, um, whether that is, you know, having gay sex or you know, engaging in IV drug use. And it's really in the mid 1980s, 1985, 1986. Um, and just as a little history, the first, you know, test for the HTLV3 virus, which is the HIV virus, is only really licensed in 1985. Mm-hmm. So before that, you're really kind of that like theory of disease is different. You're looking for symptoms, you're looking for opportunistic infections, and people are only really screening gay men. Mm-hmm. Um AIDS or HIV has, you know, there's evidence to suggest that it really was around um, as early as the 1960s, circulating in different communities. Um, Often people would refer to it as junkie pneumonia, which is, uh, you know, also a pretty messed up term. Um, Well, it's like jail fever. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's or I think there was also something called, you know, referring to the wasting syndrome, but people who were getting sick and dying and not being registered by the medical industrial complex are also part of this story. It's just that they were kind of like consigned to the dustbin of public interest. And so that's where you see some of this like older language of, you know, planned shrinkage is a term that Um, a New York City administrator named Roger Starr actually uses to refer to neighborhoods that he considers blighted and that he thinks that the city should basically remove public services like fire and ambulance care from. It's basically, it is kind of a like policy death panel in (laughs) other words, because it, it like highlights certain populations as simply too much trouble to care for. And green lights a rapid reduction in the kinds of like life maintaining services they will receive. 
And in New York City, um, there is kind of a, you know, quote unquote heroin epidemic that really escalates in the 1970s um, in no small part because people are returning from the Vietnam War dependent on opioids and kind of like the maligned junkie or the you know, character caricature of the drug user is a big piece of the like undeserving poor construction that comes Mm -hmm. up in that moment. And New York state passes these incredibly draconian Rockefeller drug laws. You know, the, the basic attitude is one of punishment rather than rehabilitation in a way that is really significant. And people with AIDS kind of fall into that in the very beginning. And you have all sorts of other kind of like welfare dependents from the welfare queen to the junkie to these like characters, the um, the super predator, you know, Mm -hmm. there's the notion that there are people living in our cities, racialized people, black and brown people living in the cities who are only able to survive because of government largesse and withdrawing that, public support for their continued care is in fact going to alleviate the problem. And the almost unsaid piece of it sometimes said is, and if they don't make it through, so it goes, Mm -hmm. you know, like society will be better off. And I think that is kind of the, like the logic that Jesse Helms in particular, but all sorts of people are really comfortable articulating and, in 2015, there was a little bit of a like popular article resurgence of the fact that you know Ronald Reagan's press secretary laughs when he's asked um, what the administration is going to do about AIDS. It's almost like a punchline to a lot of figures who do not think that this is a problem that's going to affect them. In the 19, you know, around 1985-1986, there is a growing consensus that women can get AIDS, that it might, you know, move into the heterosexual population, and a lot of, you know, gay movement activists do debate what it would mean to kind of de-gay the epidemic, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that works in two ways. One, um, they basically say, like, what does it mean to emphasize the social consequences of the epidemic beyond gay populations? Because obviously there are lots of people who would be completely fine if this only affected gay men and gay men just died. That's not actually a crisis to them. Um, and so actually emphasizing the deeply interconnected nature of our shared healthcare outcomes will result in better policy. And then there are also people who are eager to kind of rehabilitate gay men as like deserving subjects who should be worthy of care because of their ability to adhere to a certain kind of like neoliberal fiscal discipline. They're getting married, they're in relationships, they are good citizens worthy of protection. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are kind of like two ways that de-gaying the epidemic appear in that moment. And they're both kind of at play in the housing story. Yeah. And And what it has me also thinking of, especially is like uh, right now, the work of Liat Ben Moshe. And if we're thinking about, okay, deinstitutionalization, right, has been happening now in the United States since the 1950s. And you have seen these kind of protracted legal and social and political battles to kind of normalize new ideas about people who are intellectually disabled or who are diagnosed with psychiatric conditions and held in asylums or institutions. And one of the big kind of winning strategies of deinstitutionalization that Ben Moshe lays out and articulates in her book and really complicates is the 
kind of checks and balances that come as a result of forwarding this strategy of kind of like innocence and disability and Mm -hmm. that this was leveraged in order to try and achieve certain things in the court. But then in terms of like, you know, how that shaped later the way that the prison industrial complex began to sort of discuss and think about innocence, right, and vulnerability. Mm. Um, We're going to be downstream of these kind of ideas of, like, who a perfect subject is and who deserved to be out of a warehoused facility, which always then implied that if, if there's a group that deserves to be out by nature of that kind of characteristic of that moral standard, that then there must be a group that deserves to be in, like, you know, implicitly. So, you know, it really has me thinking of like, these are such important contexts to lay out and understand as really kind of like, what, what is the landscape of like, what are the legal debates that are that are being weighed when this couple is being selected as the test case? Um, Because I think it's, it's just so important to sort of see, okay, so like, we made this decision, we went with the strategy of trying to essentially rehabilitate the public image of the the sort of gay couple that is a, a working serving unit of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of context of this legal case and and walk through sort of what you find interesting about it and and why you focus on it in the piece? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things that are sort of interesting about the legal case. I think, and I I'll preface by saying I'm not a lawyer, and I I'm sure that attorneys would probably find things that are different. But I am kind of interested in the the variety of documents that come to light because of this, and the kind of coalitions that it produces while being on its face kind of a story of like gay assimilation into a neoliberal regime of respectability, right? A like a gay couple, one of whom is being evicted, basically brings a lawsuit against his landlord, saying that he is, you know, effectively materially partnered with this person and should thus be afforded the same rights of lease succession as a wife would be, whose husband passed away mm-hmm. and whose husband was on the lease. That's kind of a, you know, uh, maybe a like rough hewn analogy, but it's essentially what Miguel Brashi is initially arguing. Um, as the case moves up through the courts through various appeals, the New York Civil Liberties Union takes it on. And the attorneys who are arguing this are very strategically thinking about AIDS. And they actually do make a couple of arguments that essentially gesture to functional family law and also zoning law. And both of those, there's a wonderful scholar named Stephen Veter who's written a little bit about kind of the functional family jurisprudence in particular, but that had to do with unrelated people living in a home together and whether or not certain zoning restrictions applied to them. They also pull in some earlier welfare rights cases about illegitimate children, quote unquote, illegitimate children, um, and whether or not their parents, you know, their parentage should be considered when they are applying for welfare benefits. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of this like, mishmash of zoning law, poverty law that they are drawing on to make their case. But I believe the statutes that they actually find legs on eventually are human rights law cases, um, because New York City has passed a um, anti-discrimination law that does protect gays and lesbians in particular from discrimination. So they basically say that in order for rent control to be consistent with that intention, rent control has to make some sort of functional test um, for same-sex couples to prove that they 
you know, are real couples. And the functional test they come up with is that you have to have lived together for two years. You have to prove you have emotional and financial interdependence on one another. Um, <laughs> and so I was kind of interested of like, how do you prove those things? Yeah. And it's, you know, through evidence that the super knew who you were and you received mail there. That's one. Or you shared a credit card or you were out to your family and friends or you were um, they have a lot of these affidavits that are essentially about how, you know, their family and friends trusted them around their children, that they basically it's like they would have gotten married if they could. Um, and therefore they are protected. But what that test while it does create some framework to really expand protections for some couples, it does also kind of create an, an easy test to fail if you are <laughs> not out to people or you don't have shared bank accounts or credit cards or financial statements or you you know are, are kind of less legible as like a good gay person. My I remember this is not really scholarly, but anecdotal. I kind of became really obsessed with this case because at the time I was living in a rent stabilized apartment and my downstairs neighbors were two gay men who were in their seventies, one of whom passed away and they had never gotten married mm -hmm. and had always talked about it as sort of this, you know, vestige of the time that they were from. They didn't want to be, they didn't want to be legible to the state, mm -hmm. um, particularly the one who passed away and the building, you know, they'd been in there since 1972 was eager to evict them because they were paying significantly under market rate or evict him, the remaining tenant. And they actually did use the Brashi case to fight his eviction in court and did win. But there was this open question of now that gay marriage is legal and yeah. had been legal for many years, why didn't you get married? What's your excuse? And so, yeah, yeah. Fuck, and so, <laughs> right. And so there's no way there's no <sighs> out really to like yeah. how. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That was so fucking... Yeah. Uh, oh. No, I mean, this is why I loved reading this piece because, you know, and part of why this becomes attractive to the state is really important, right? Like, yeah, we talk about this often on the show, but I think it always bears repeating that part of the reason why this is successful legally and, you know, why you see these kind of things of like, you know, having to demonstrate economic interdependence and sort of defining these relationships through proving our worth as, you know, economically and how the economic valuation of life really factors into how policy is applied selectively at the individual level. I mean, it's 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 so crucial to sort of understand how all these things are entangled and co-constitutive. And I, I think one thing that's just so key is the fact that this is attractive because this allows a kind of voicing of some of the like responsibility of that care, actually, as you mentioned earlier, like part of this is that in some sense, it's a little bit cheaper to have people die in their homes in the context of HIV AIDS at this moment. And completely, you know, that this is ultimately not just a kind of it's it's often discussed as this kind of like purely moral or ethical moment in in policymaking where like the government as a result of pushing an advocacy in the courts makes a decision about how it's going to change the way that it treats gay people. Like that's how we, that's how we tell the stories yeah. of like how this stuff happens, but it's really like, yeah, but the government was also like, Hmm, 
this is, you know, really attractive to us financially. This looks super <laughs> good on our balance sheet. You know, totally. it's not so much the kind of moral ethical move that it's often narrativized as. It's also and maybe arguably primarily a tactical decision from a budgetary standpoint under the constraints of how we fund cities and states in the United States. Completely. And actually, I, as I was kind of finishing up my dissertation, I read an incredible book by a scholar named Craig Wilsey called The Value of Homelessness. I really recommend it. It's so good. And it like really kind of exploded my mind a little bit thinking about what I was seeing in terms of this like constant fiscal rationalization that does in fact strangle the ability to make universal policy because there has to be a cost savings. You know, that's the only Mm -hmm. way the Democratic Party makes arguments for social spending in the 21st century is by trying to argue that, in fact, it will save us money in the long run, (laughs) which it turns out is a compelling argument and is also true. It's not not true, um, but it does create very narrow policy incentives, right? We're not actually making policy about protecting people or taking care of people or, you know, valuing health. It's about cost savings. And what's so interesting, you know, this AIDS case, it does show how intimately related housing and healthcare actually are, because you can't discharge people from a hospital if they have nowhere to be discharged to. That Mm -hmm. becomes a massive problem for New York City in particular. And in the AIDS story, there's kind of an interesting, I think, kind of apocryphal, um, (laughs) please tune in and read my dissertation. (laughs) Um, Like, false dichotomy that's made between San Francisco and New York, where there's the San Francisco model of care, Mm -hmm. which is essentially a continuum of care. It's an early example of a continuum of care where people are discharged early from the hospital. They are able to access home-based care services, largely enabled by a extensive volunteer core of people who are willing to be buddies in home, provide in-home kind of quasi-nursing care. And the argument is basically San Francisco's epidemic is very gay, very middle class, and all those people have homes. Whereas New York's epidemic is poor, it's far more black and brown, and it primarily involves IV drug users who were probably ill before they came to the hospital with other conditions. And so that kind of volunteer labor driven home-based care model is more difficult to achieve. And so what you see in New York are after years and years and years of, you know, human suffering where people are out on the street, they're ill and dying on the street. There are some kind of housing models created that basically directly take people's social security benefits in order to provide them with care. And it's hospice care, it's nursing care, it's sort of that kind of like middle of the road inpatient, outpatient care. And there that also does not have enough beds, but it's also an imperfect solution that is not necessarily about making sure that people have places to go. It's actually about kind of like cost containment. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that way, we see all sorts of resistant institutions from insurance companies to even the Medicaid bureaucracy sort of start to understand that providing people care upstream, Mm -hmm. in fact, reduces costs downstream. So the earlier you can get someone with HIV into care, the less expensive they will be to treat for the next several years. 
with the exception of pharmaceutical management. So that is kind of the like third rail in all of this is that the drugs are very, very expensive um, when they do come on the market. And that's what there ends up being a federal subsidy for essentially through the Ryan White Care Act. And so AIDS care in its first years, it is this really interesting activist landscape where people are basically able to prove and show to every, you know, everyday people who might be ideologically all over the place on the political spectrum, that in fact, a right to housing and a, you know, right to medical care and lowering barriers to access, actually getting people on Medicaid is a social good and a fiscal good. And they're able to convincingly make that argument. I think it changes some things in the war on drugs. I think we get things like case management um, or, you know, the explosion of social workers in hospitals in large part because there's suddenly a real financial incentive for people to think about how sick people actually interact with the administrative state. Mm-hmm. And if someone has come into a public hospital emergency room with late stage AIDS and is not enrolled in Medicaid because they didn't have a stable address, for example, even though they might qualify, the hospital bears the cost of their care. And so suddenly you have hospital administrators testifying in front of Congress, essentially saying that we have to expand access to Medicaid and Medicare, right? Because they want those dollars. And you have all these different kind of constituencies. And then when the drugs come on the market in 96, I think you see sort of a, I mean, or, you know, the effective drugs, AZT is a whole different kind of thing, but you do see sort of a demobilization of sorts because the emphasis once again becomes on survival rather than this like continuum of care. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think HIV AIDS is a really interesting, like almost vehicle through which we move from this like old welfare state. It's the first stress test of Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, the new deal welfare state, like managed care, Spanish flu. Totally. Managed care, you know, this is like when the drugs start coming into market, we're six to seven years into the rise of like the dominance of managed care. And you're starting to see, I mean, over the next 20 years, you're going to see the privatization of nearly 40% of the public hospitals in the United States. And we really start looking at things like inducing Medicaid cycling to try and bring down spending, becoming very, very attractive options to states as ways of sort of enacting fiscal levers. And often these like moral hazard frameworks are what were leveraged in order to justify making very cruel policy choices like this. Absolutely. And I think it's such a it's a we shot ourselves in the foot. We (laughs) broad tent, but (laughs) in sort of embracing a fiscal rationale for providing people with care, I think there are points at which it is no longer just cheaper to care for someone than not to. Mm-hmm. If that is the only data point that we are concerned with in policymaking, that obviously results in very poor experiences of receiving care, of providing care. Um, and I think that some of, you know, New York does significantly expand its home care offerings as a result of HIV AIDS because it's so much cheaper to pay for care in home. But it's cheaper to pay for care in home in part because home health aides are egregiously underpaid and unprotected Mm -hmm. under New Deal law, you know. So it's one of those things of 
even in my record, sometimes like gay men's health crisis will be trying to place someone with a home health aid, but the city is refusing to reimburse beyond like three fifty an hour or something like that. So it's essentially less, this great volunteer experiment that many of these community-based organizations successfully demonstrate the like humanity or like the, you know, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say it, but these community-based organizations essentially do show the public at large that there is a humane and kind way to provide care. And that involves a lot of like labor hours, right? The buddy program, Mm -hmm. um, people being assigned multiple caseworkers, gay men's health crisis, providing services ranging from like massage to nutritional assistance to recreational care for their clients. That is a model of dying that is very different than I think anything we had seen up until that point. But in order to find a state justification for making that experience actually accessible on a structural level, like we cannot do it without underpaying the workers who do it or, you know, like making sure that you only qualify if you spend on all your assets and you can't own a radio. Like there's something about our rhetorical commitment to like only the poorest or not creating a functional social safety net that really like kneecaps our ability to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's just, it's it's really important to sort of understand how when we sort of decide when we're going to be responsible for and not responsible for care, like that this this labor doesn't suddenly just like the need for it doesn't go away, right? Like, yeah. Um, and I, I think that it's often because we don't value people who are, I mean, it's, we're all like, we're all dying, right? So it's like, we don't value people yeah. who are like dying faster, yeah. who are like visibly dying um, yeah. in front of us, who we have to watch die because we don't value people who we have to watch die, who we know are dying. Like, yeah, it as a constituency, especially, right? Like they have probably the the, the least amount of, I think, political leverage, <laughs> um, especially when you're thinking of like how Democrats a- approach constituency uh, in terms of like their ideology and understanding. But this kind of work that is involved in dying, right? It's work that is still going to have to go on and it becomes more and more invisible and even in terms of sort of how this like can affect people beyond the individual who's dying, you know, not just in terms of their quality of life and care, but like a very common situation that you have is, you know, people will take, for example, time off of work to care for someone mm-hmm. uh, who is dying for for kin who are dying and then they'll return to work. And then when they uh, reach age to qualify for Social Security or if they become disabled, their SSA payment will be lower because of that time that they took off unpaid to care for that person who was dying. Right. And so there's a kind of loop of like fiscal offloading and then a kind of punishment and a kind of foisting this on the institution of the family as a safety net of last resort. And, you know, one of the main kind of points that you make in this article and why this case sort of becomes important is because it's also this moment where the family becomes this kind of like policy architecture, right? And Mm -hmm. it becomes legitimated as like an equal alternative to standing up complex systems to provide these kinds of services. So it's like, you know, we look at a really complex problem that with funding could scale, 
right? And sort of provide things that we can't even quantify the financial benefit, you know, like, because they're not, they don't, (laughs) they don't have financial benefits, right? Like, not everything, um, I don't mean to sound like an old MasterCard commercial, too, but like, you know, it's like not everything (laughs) ends up on the balance sheet at the end of the day. But like, if that's all that we tell ourselves we can sort of uh, weigh for or use in terms of like analysis in terms of trying to decide whether something's good or not, these are the rules that we set up for ourselves for judging these things. And so predictably, at the end of the day, the results that we get are pretty bullshit. And, you know, yeah, you know, you write in this quote, the family served as a potent site because it presented an alternative to costly publicly funded medical care within the context of fiscal austerity. And I think especially considering the discourse around public debt, fiscal cliff, COVID spending, inflation, Uh the welfare state right now, and what we're looking at in terms of the privatization of COVID and the kind of looming transfer of the kind of payer for a lot of these things from Mm -hmm. the federal government down to individuals and the cliff that we're facing April 1st, where we're going to see, you know, up to 15 million people begin to be reevaluated for Medicaid and potentially kicked off sometimes Mm -hmm. when they'll still qualify. You know, we have these uh, really interesting kind of contexts right now that actually do you have a lot of similarities to some of these periods in terms of being in a moment of a disease also, like an infectious disease sort of shaping the policy discourse a lot and the understanding of that disease as it changes being also wrapped up in the the justification for how and why we prioritize certain things policy-wise. Like the thing that you mentioned about AZT and the Ryan White Act and the subsidies ending up going towards the drugs and not towards something like home care, right? Like, it's like an interesting counterfactual is like, well, what if the drugs had taken five more years and we had this, you know, or sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, what's I, I'm, I'm writing something about the Ryan White Care Act right now as a like policy mechanism. So I'm kind of in the weeds on it. But something that's really interesting. So Ryan White, when it's passed, is passed as a five-year um, appropriation rather than an entitlement. So it's not like Medicaid or Medicare, and it has to be renewed every five years. And you know that's like what Joe Biden was pointing to during his State of the Union is that people want to make Medicare and Medicaid not entitlement-based programs, but programs that would be subject to renewal, discretionary spending bills, and why that's materially different. And so Ryan White is a discretionary spending bill that then is renewed for 30 years. So it's not, it, it its need does not go away in five years, obviously. And I think that no one, while they were writing or passing Ryan White, thought that the need for it would go away in five years. And the hearings for Ryan White reveal all of these sort of like ways that the healthcare system has been, it's basically this like weird scarecrow of a system that no one likes. Mm-hmm. It's excessively bureaucratic. It relies on all of these weird, you know, there's a, I'm, are you, I'm sure you are actually, but I'm sure you're familiar with the DRG, the diagnosis related group. Yes. Um, so that, you know, like the DRG is created by a Yale business school professor and some insurance do professionals. You, for, for our listeners who don't, do you mind? Um, the quick and dirty of the DRG? Yes. 
Okay. I'm excited. We haven't had a chance to actually bring this into the show before. So I'm like, I was thinking, I'm like, there's not actually an episode to be like, oh, yeah, if you want to hear about that, go back to. So, I mean, I'm I am not a DRG expert, but basically the way um, Medicaid and Medicare, but also many private insurers will reimburse hospitals for care um, is rather than, you know, let's say I have a gallstone and I, I don't even know what a gallstone is. Let's say I have a heart attack and I go into the hospital and I need to be treated. I will like I am I have a code on there for heart attack. That's the patient reimbursement rate that Medicaid will reimburse for me per day. So let's say that Medicaid has decided or a private insurer has decided that their heart attack code 544 or whatever, that's the DRG reimbursement rate is actually $12 a day. If I also happen to have, let's say, diabetes and HIV, and so the costs of my care after I have a heart attack are closer to $50 a day, that gulf is something that the hospital has to make up, right? And so there's a lot of weird incentives for doctors to offer, you know, like put patients, patient billing is a whole kind of um, technology of its own. So kind of creatively billing, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of that's where we see all these weird insurance codes come up. If you've ever gotten an insurance statement and you see sort of like strange codes on yeah. there that don't totally make sense, like that's all a DRG uh, legacy. And when you hear people talking about like, oh, see if we just were able to implement transparency in pricing we'd be able yes. to uh, allow consumers to make smart healthcare choices. And that's the problem with U.S. healthcare. What they're essentially saying is, well, what if we made these huge, huge, huge books of prices available to the public? Exactly. And I think that there is an interesting thing that happens in the 80s. So the DRG system, I think, is like first implemented in the like late 70s, maybe early 80s. I can check my notes, but that's my impression of things. And it's kind of implemented. And then the it, it's created in the private industry. Public insurers take it on as sort of a way to adopt the efficient, you know, pro-efficiency, like good for business ethos of better private insurers, basically. <laughs> and then when HIV AIDS becomes this massive epidemic, it is very difficult to add something to the DRG system. And there is no DRG for HIV. So one of the reasons it is so catastrophic for the public health system is less because, you know, well, one, people with AIDS often are ending up in the ER or ending up in the hospital in those early years and meeting doctors who do not know how to treat them, in part because they have not kept up with the, you know, really rapidly evolving literature on AIDS care, and also because it is a new thing and people don't really know how it works. So it is necessarily more expensive to treat because people are throwing a lot of paint at their patients. Um, and some of it is sticking, some of it is not. There is no DRG for HIV. There is no DRG for AIDS at that moment. And so often people have to use the medical codes that are like patient came in with like TB or mm -hmm. pulmonary you know, infection. And often those codes are less than the sum of their, you know, attendant costs. So the more people with AIDS who come in, who are costing hospitals more than their DRG reimbursement, the, the bigger that Delta grows, the more of a crisis this becomes for sort of like the hospital system. And so 
in the Ryan White hearings, and you know, people are kind of thinking about this. And one of the solutions is maybe we should make a DRG for AIDS rather than our system of medical billing is broken, right? Mm-hmm. So Ryan White does like allocate all these funds to states, to cities. They create programs, grant-based programs for nonprofits to apply for funding to create home-based care when insurers won't cover it. They have drug programs. So Ryan White does enable this like mm-hmm. massive expansion of the welfare state in many ways helmed by nonprofit organizations led by gay men, led by women of color. You know, there are these kind of democratizing impulses in there, but it builds on top of a pretty um, stupid system for actually distributing healthcare, And so it is enormously expensive incredibly complicated to navigate, creates so much paperwork for anyone receiving Ryan White funds and essentially becomes yet another kind of like, quote unquote, bloated government program that no one is entirely happy with and doesn't always, you know, solve. It's not socialized medicine and that it is not well organized in how those resources are distributed. They're distributed through grant funding, through these like nonprofit service providers that are sometimes good, sometimes bad, and I think really begins to complicate our understanding of public private healthcare because it's not just Medicaid or Aetna or something like that. It's Medicaid, Aetna, and you're enrolled as a client at the Gay Men's Health Crisis where you receive case management services that are partially reimbursed through Ryan White. And then also you might be going to a drop-in shelter sometimes that is receiving some Ryan White funds for shelter beds, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of kind of radical gay organizations or even groups like Lambda Legal Defense who, when the Clinton administration is putting together the HSA, come out really early and say, you know, managed care is so bad for people with AIDS because they already have a condition that few doctors understand, medical gatekeeping, all of these other kind of like facets of how managed care works, in fact, keeps them from accessing the preventative care that they need. Um, Often there are really specialized doctors and medicines. So like patient choice is really important. So there are all of these kind of patient experience reasons why we don't support managed care. I'm forgetting what they actually had called it. It was something like managed competition was what the Clinton plan was. Yeah, it was something really fucking heinous. Um, Yeah, it was this like marketplace solution that was regional and complicated and no one liked it from the left or the right. And so bad, so bad. And I think that in that AIDS moment in the 90s, there was actually, I think, a like moment of political possibility for a different kind of universal solution squandered. And it has been really interesting to see with COVID, especially how people talk about long COVID, like it's a fictional thing or that, you know, doesn't really exist, like the kind of skepticism Mm -hmm. towards the idea that there could possibly be health outcomes that we don't fully understand <laughs> um like happening to me as a historian of AIDS I'm sort of like of course like we didn't even understand what AIDS was until maybe like 1989 you know mm-hmm. eight years after it's done and the people in charge of figuring out how disease works are sometimes ethical scientists and sometimes really not you know and Sometimes there's like a desire towards curing or medicalizing treatment outcomes that 
I guess, you know, what I'm really thinking about is AZT yeah. and how AZT made a lot of people a lot sicker. Made um, a lot of people die was, faster. And then it was really made, hard yeah. to get researchers to switch course because also like the way that NIH funding worked at the time really incentivized them to double down on things that had already gotten approval. So it was like they had no reason to stop researching it. Like they didn't really... It didn't matter to them if the patients died faster in a kind of material sense. Exactly. And you have all of these people with AIDS who have kind of, what's remarkable is that these organizations that crop up, I'm kind of fascinated with them, even though I have, you know, sometimes a critical perspective on what they turned into or turn into over time. They do partially because of the like lobbying and self-advocacy on people with AIDS They provide this like container for people to apply for social security, become disabled, stop working, but still acknowledge their capacity to provide and participate in a like rich social world. Often, you know, people are working on the AIDS hotline because they've qualified for social security disability and volunteer work is different than like you know, I'm sure now there would be some heinous panel that would sort of say, like, looks like you can work after all. Well, but, actually, um, we haven't updated the book of jobs since like the 70s. So, oh, well, interestingly, now I'm even thinking, you know, the the push from ma- many of those organizations to make AIDS evidence of presumptive disability in many of the records, people are kind of fighting about, like, how much do people with AIDS need to prove that they truly cannot work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but the many who do qualify for benefits after all of that push are able to shape how those organizations actually like factor in their voice and think about what it means to be a person with AIDS. And I think through that struggle actually do constitute a meaningful identity category of people living with HIV AIDS that transcends just like, I'm a gay man, I'm a woman who used to use drugs, et cetera, et cetera. There's like a more robust identity category that almost emerges. And those are the people who are online in early internet forums, basically saying like, I take only half my AZT. My friend died Mm -hmm. after taking too much AZT. Like, let us have an active contestation of what medical authority is telling us about how drugs work. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see happening with long COVID too, at least, or like people saying there is a secondary, not like expertise market. And it's people who have long COVID yeah. actually like describing what's happening to them. No, I mean, I think the social role of the person with AIDS within the landscape of sort of understanding like the actual efficacy of um, HIV AIDS era organizing is so important because it, it's also, I think, one of the things that has been most influential towards like the development of certain frameworks of understanding um, and conceptualizing chronic illness as a kind of identity mm. as well. Like in terms of like the things that guided me, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness at a point where like people were just not familiar with the word autoimmune disease, like at mm-hmm. all. Like I, I cannot tell you how many times people would be like, so why have you been missing so much class? I was diagnosed with like freshman mm-hmm. year of college. Why have you been missing so much class? Oh, you know, I have to go to the doctor. You know, I'm like, they think I might have an autoimmune disease and people would literally, mm-hmm. literally say like, 
is that HIV? And I'm like, well, it's kind of the opposite. That's like a, yeah. a, a virus that, you know, depletes the immune system. Mine's like an immune system that eats my body. And they're like, oh, I didn't know the body could do that. Like, and this was only right. 2009. This was like the beginning of the ACA fight. Like, and the ACA fight in some ways actually made chronic illness through the framework of pre-existing condition legible to the broader public in a way that like completely shifted the way that people understood um, my diagnosis when I would engage with the the rare person that I would disclose to in those early years mm-hmm. because it was awkward and people had no fucking clue what I was talking about and were worried that I was contagious and would make them sick. And oh my gosh. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and we've actually come very far in a very short amount of time towards just understanding like, you know, the kind of just simple recognition of being like, oh, I have an autoimmune disease. People get that now. Like, Pretty, pretty quickly, mm-hmm. actually. And I don't think that would have been possible without some of the kind of frameworks that folks like me were able to take directly from people with AIDS who really kind of pioneered some of the ways of thinking through, especially also like our relationships to our medication um, yeah, and to sort of living through dying and things like that. And so I, I think it's always been really generative also to sort of look at how this is emerging at a moment where we're also seeing these these kind of layered complexities of the U.S. healthcare system. We're seeing this preference towards a kind of decentralization of responsibility and decentralization mm-hmm. of the financial risk that's taken on um, by everyone else for people who need more care and who are less economically valuable. And it's such an important time to sort of understand how we've gotten to where we are. I mean, one of the things I'm, I have not been able to stop thinking about this whole conversation is there was this story that I heard about in the context of this episode that we did now, I think like two or three years ago, called A Death Panel History of Medicare, which is that in the kind of final moments of putting together what ultimately became Medicare and Medicaid, that there were three proposals on the table, essentially. And the legislator who was sort of the lead on this, um, shaping the architecture of, of this policy and trying to manage all the different stakeholder groups and constituencies, many of which were either like physician <laughs> uh, professional organizations worried about autonomy and, and physician mm. rates or um, insurance companies or employers who wanted to reduce costs. Like at that point, like patients were not hugely involved at- or considered to be a kind of constituency. You did have some early beginnings of like disability organizing back then, but it was more on behalf of like retired and disabled people or on behalf of veterans. Mm -hmm. It was a very different like sort of landscape. And so he mashes these three options together that are basically three different um, proposals, one that's favored by the American Hospital Association, one that's favored by the insurance companies, and one that's very <laughs> favored by the American Medical Association, and calls it a layer cake, calls it a three-layer cake. Wow. And things like the Ryan White Act, you know, these are additional layers that we have applied onto this cake model, actually. And it's funny to think of, like, how one of the main discussions in that episode is the fact that this comes at a moment of extreme pressure towards socialized medicine in the United States and answering how to pay for the care of disabled and retired people and for poor people who are not 
um, profitable to insure in the insurance markets was mm-hmm. a national discussion. And, you know, this is kind of the last point when single payer was majorly on the table at a federal level. And so you see Medicare and Medicaid actually implemented as a way of relieving that pressure of relieving the pressure for single payer. And this is something Artie and I also write about in the beginning of health communism. And some people have been like, why are you talking about this specifically? And we're like, well, because sometimes when we add layers to the cake or we put (laughs) band-aids on healthcare, the result is that it can shrink the constituencies applying pressure and we can reduce actually maybe sometimes things in the long run or produce things that ultimately like we cannot sustain like our healthcare system the the layers we've added onto it have made it temporarily more sustainable but it doesn't make the model of for-profit healthcare uh sustainable in the long run actually absolutely or any more functional you know right mm-hmm. after Ryan White has passed something that's really so you know the historiography of the welfare state is fraught um and i think there are there's a whole generation of historians that have essentially written about how the New Deal and the Medicaid and Medicare, you know, strategically exclude certain populations, be it gay men in the military or black domestic workers or home health aides. You know, there are these strategic exclusions from even the most um, expansive social welfare programs we have set about making. And the kind of insidious or ingenious, I'm not sure, depending on the word you want to choose, thing about the Ryan White Care Act is it, in fact, sort of turns all of that on its head and makes explicit provision for minority access to care. Mm-hmm. It creates some sort of democratizing panels for um, people with AIDS to actually plan out on HIV planning councils how funds will be allocated. It prioritizes need all through that language of, you know, the sickest people are often the poorest and the most marginalized and the most expensive. So we actually do have to create funds for case management, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing Ryan White does. And yeah. it does like explode the number of like specific, you know, like the Asian and Pacific uh, like AIDS service coalition. There are all of these kind of like culturally specific, culturally attuned aid service organizations that are like able to exist because of Ryan White and able to have room to maneuver relative to these like other really massive white organizations because of it. That is a positive thing. Um, You have all sorts of like programs that are sort of like more holistically focused were funded because of the Ryan White Care Act. But I found I basically just cut this from a piece. So I'll talk to you about it instead. Um, California at the time is or right after Ryan White in the early 90s is I believe it's proposition I will double check but there's a basically a single payer proposition kind of similar to the one that they passed in Massachusetts to being debated in California and all sorts I mean the insurance lobby is like violently against it and they do something so shrewd where they employ David Mixner, who is an attorney and often referred to as Bill Clinton's gay friend because he's such <laughs> a like prolific fundraiser for Bill Clinton among gay like political organizers. He's like a capital D Democrat. Um, there's a, you know, like scholarship named after him at CUNY Law. Was, it prop, was it Prop 186? Um, yes, Prop oh, 186. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Um, So they get David Mixner, they get a couple of like feminist attorneys to essentially lobby groups like the AIDS Project Los Angeles and say, 
if they pass the single-payer system, you'll be subject to the whims of a state health commissioner when it comes to what services will be covered. And do you trust them to cover abortion care? Do you trust them to cover um, like HIV AIDS care when we currently have such a wonderful carve out for HIV. And so you have these kind of like, especially middle class recipients of public funds for their AIDS care, essentially saying, you know, I know a lot of people, there's in fact a quote from one of the board members of APLA who say, I know that a lot of people have been, you know, sold up the river by our current healthcare system, but it's really worked for me. (laughs) And because of the Ryan White Care Act, I know that my tests, and I have a lot of tests, which people with AIDS have to have, like they're all covered. And so why would I want to risk it and, you know, go to a single payer system. And so there is suddenly this like very 2009 thing of like your your stuff won't be covered if we go to a universal system because you're so well versed in gatekeeping, in our fiscal logics. Like, don't you isn't the small patch of land you have right now better than the unknown of what single payer could mean. This is the disability and, argument against single payer, though, is like, yeah, totally. We've, we've gotten what we can from our insurance companies now. Do you really want to have to redo those prior authorizations, which, of course, is like only a medicalized understanding of disability? But yes, no. And oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> Please continue. Sorry. No, it's just it, and it's profoundly demobilizing. And I, in my writing, just like with the Brashi stuff, do have to work with myself sometimes to understand that it is life and death for people, you know? So of course there is, I have sympathy for what it means to fear that you're going to lose access to your highly active antiretroviral therapy, which is enormously expensive. You could not afford, you might suspect that a like hateful racist and homophobic state would not cover. But I do think that our work as organizers, as like people on the left, whatever we want to call ourselves is to like actually lead with a like really robust accounting for people's fears and then to move them along, you know? Yeah, because these are like the questions that actually are some of the most important single payer questions that we can never talk about if all we evaluate policy on is is it going to save money? Because people know that like when the bottom line of whether something's judged to be good or not is, is it going to save money that folks who do have more needs are going to be on the chopping block, that our needs are going to be rationed. And so, you know, it's absolutely so frustrating because, you know, in this kind of broader conversation about costs, we really crowd out what is actually the important conversation about single payer, which is, what actually are people's needs? And beyond the needs that they have now, what are the needs that are currently imperfect? What are the needs that are not being met? You know, and and we have to kind of push our frameworks for, for understanding policy and political will beyond the cost narrative in order to even get to any of those questions that at the end of the day are the questions that are most important. You know, someone's not going to live totally. or die on like the state of New York saving $760 a day on medical care. But like that move might 
kill someone's loved one or kill someone, you know? And so you have these kind of ways that like the kind of human is transformed into an object through our policy frameworks, just in the discourse about how we talk about our politics in the world. And it's no wonder that so many disabled and chronically ill and, you know, immune compromised people feel like unwelcome in the, the Medicare for all debate because all they hear about is this kind of cost yeah. advantage. And that reads as like, oh, fuck, I'm going to be optimized out of existence. Right. You know. And what does it mean to actually have high quality care? Or even, you know, like, first of all, make our scope a little more global. Like yes. we have AIDS drugs that the world does not yes. and access to them in ways that are like deeply inequitable. And I understand this idea of like my foot is in the door and I am safe. And so do I want to risk like jumping into the next room when I might be caught in that void? But I also always think, and this is a like imperfect analogy, feel free to cut it. But I'm so reminded (laughs) of trying to organize our graduate student union early on in graduate school when people are in their first and second years, they're like, the job market is so far away. I do not care. I am a special, brilliant flower. And like, (laughs) this will not happen to me, you know? And so I think just like being temporarily able-bodied, which is, I think, such a useful framework for people to understand, like you will also need care. We will all need care. And yes, the cost of our care might be minuscule, but when all, all chances point to the fact that you are someone you love will need more care than you can afford mm-hmm. or you can comfortably provide or that you can live the way you want to live while providing. And creating like an ethical and humane system allows us to kind of like breathe a little easier. You know, there's like so much. We're also clenched. Now I'm just making broad based <laughs> social pronouncements. But I do think that like that is I'm obviously on the job market right now. And one of my biggest fear things is like health insurance. You know, mm-hmm. if we could just remove that from the equation, don't you think you would benefit even if you are a like healthy strapping person who runs marathons and never can imagine yourself being ill? Yeah, no, I mean, and I think if we think about things in terms of, you know, what can certain policy frameworks open up for us in terms of like potential leverage, I think that the example, you know, to tie it back to your article, like the example of of this case and how as this case is like, regardless of like the kind of outcome of the case, which is this sort of new framework for understanding, you know, like family structure that we've been critical of, right? Like, Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. the same time, also, you talk about how this case is able to actually kind of be leveraged um, by activists towards certain other goals also, um, while Mm -hmm. it's going on. And so when we sort of think about like, okay, well, sometimes certain strategies aren't going to produce the kind of policy results that we want. And sometimes there are policies that would produce you know, tremendous leverage for all sorts of movements, but we talk about them wrong. And so we have to sort of work on on these multiple fronts at once. But it's also so helpful to understand that sometimes even those failures, like as they're working their way or not a failure, but like a sort of semi win or not imperfect, right? These imperfect wins as they're working their way through the system, like these also present us with certain opportunities for for leverage, for organizing, for political education, and for movement building too as well. Completely. And I think there's no one in this first country who 
thinks that they're interested in health insurance until they have to like fight with their health insurance company. And it is like an immediately radicalizing experience. That's pretty universal, I think. Um, and maybe some people really do feel like, you know, the system is working for them. But I I would venture that they are in the like radical minority. I think that the narrative that the system is too big to change has been so, so thoroughly and well sold that that is actually what we're most up against more than people's personal. I don't think that 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 guy that is always invoked who loves their private insurance. (laughs) I think that that's another instance of the AMA making up a guy, right? Which like, if you look at the history of health insurance in the United States, it's decades and decades of making up a guy and using that to justify continuing an extractive status quo, you know, even for all of the hard work that goes into those band-aids, like fundamentally, like the underlying system has to also go (laughs) totally oh this has been so wonderful is there anything we didn't get a chance to get to or anything you want to plug before we wrap i don't want to keep you longer but this has been so wonderful thank you no i had such a blast um i'm almost like i want to know what you think of this like do you think the covid moment is going to be an opportunity like what is your political hopefulness right now on a scale of one to ten We don't have to put this in the podcast. I just want to know as a fan. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a really important question. I've actually been thinking about this so much um, because of the main feed episode that Artie's working on right now that's going to come out tomorrow, which is um, a two-parter. But this will come out, I guess, after. So maybe folks will get to hear this behind the scenes. So it's a two-parter. I did a bunch of different interviews with folks who have been organizing and grappling with COVID in their organizing lives and personal lives and sort of talking about certain things that have not worked, certain things that have worked, takeaways, you know, changes over time, things like that. And honestly, I came away from it the way that I came away from reading Greg Bordowitz's oral history project interview for the ACT UP oral history project, where he says, like, you know, there was this moment where I thought from ACT UP I could I saw this health justice movement there ready to grow and it didn't mm. happen and I wanted it to happen. And he sort of laments that and and his critique is that, you know, it was sort of limited by the 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 turn towards respectability and thinking about just some of the conversations we've been able to to have with people who are doing this kind of work on the ground, who are working on things like the food workers at the university like didn't have a sick time policy and was such that like when people were sick with COVID, there was like really uneven staffing and they weren't bringing it. They weren't like basically scheduling to accommodate the let it rip Omicron wave. And so I was talking to one of the organizers who as a student, you know, successfully applied pressure on the university to basically for the first time ever in the history of the university, they set up a policy where they agreed to like fully staff the dining halls and not just foist that surplus burden onto the dining hall workers because they could. And so I've been thinking about that so much. I I think I read your uh, article first when Bench sent it to me about a month or two ago and then read it a couple more times and then did those interviews and read it again yesterday. And so that's actually (laughs) what I've been thinking about all all this time is like, 
wow, actually, this is such an incredible moment where so many people are looking at so many different things. Like, I know that the the kids at that university working on that uh, dining hall worker campaign, like, were looking to act up for those lessons. They, like, were able to go to the section in our book in the pharmacology chapter where that David Warner, or, no, it's not the David Warner of its one, it's the Greg Bordowitz um, mm-hmm. felt, you know, sort of health justice movement that could have been, quote, is, and that they are incorporating that into how they're, you know, planning strategy and how they're organizing. And so actually, like, you know, thinking about, okay, where was ACT UP this many years into HIV? Like, it didn't exist. Wow. You know? That's such a good frame. So in some ways, really, yeah. I don't mean to sound Pollyanna, like I, I'm pretty realistic no, about I, the grim reality, but I think we have opportunity. You have to have some hope. Yeah, there is. I mean, yeah, hope with action, you know, like hope with a plan. You're not sounding Pollyanna-ish. I think it's important to at least understand that you can move things, that we can move things. There's potential for change is such an important part of like the amount of energy it takes to do that kind of work, you know? Mm -hmm. And it takes a kind of collective learning and coordination that is possible now that is not a tool that folks in ACT UP actually had, but they tried to figure out ways to make it. And now that we do have those tools, I think we can learn some really important lessons, especially from, you know, this particular moment that you're looking at in your work, which is like in everyone's mind, the kind of often the only time the HIV AIDS epidemic existed and sort of what was able to change is often, I think, conceptually truncated when we kind of look back at it. It's like, this is the moment where change was possible. And then there's something about the Clinton administration that, okay, like ADA is passed. (laughs) Like we've got Ryan White, like we're good to go. Here we go. Like no more change necessary. And I think that that really... You know, I love that actually we ended up talking about Ryan White so much because that's where my thinking was going reading your article. So it just sort of completes the picture in such a perfect way. Thanks. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And if I could just say one final Pollyannish thing, I won't keep you too long. But in my kind of other activist life with the Asian American Feminist Collective, we often talk about kind of like the opposite of the tech model of like moving really slowly and intentionally and building relationships with people. And I do think that some of the work you're doing interviewing and like making space for voices to think at length imperfectly to actually prioritize our human connections is a crucial part of like building any other world. And every organizer knows that, but I do think that the like disability frame allows for it in a urgent way rather than just a gestural way Hmm. because our bodies are limited to some degree in what we can do and our minds are and we need rest and we need care and that works in many sort of ways and sometimes I think in my eagerness or maybe the biggest thing I have learned from doing all of this research and particularly research about HIV AIDS one is activist strategy but two is sort of the reframe on long-term survival Mm -hmm. um, and what survival actually takes as a like spiritual, emotional, physical process that actually requires us to think expansively about all of our needs and 
making sure that they're met, even in the face of hostile structures that I just think is important. And I think you're doing really good work for that. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. It means so much to hear that. Thank you. I mean, I feel like the luckiest person in the world getting to have these conversations, but they're things that I need desperately. (laughs) So at least I get to share them, you know. Yeah, many of us need them. So thanks for sharing. Well, thank you for coming and being so generous with your work. I think that is the perfect place to leave it. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you Monday in the bonus feed. Everyone else will catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Mm